This is a conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. I'm Catherine Cruz. The federal government set aside $7 billion for hydrogen infrastructure. It's to fund six to ten hydrogen hubs across the country. Hawaii is said to have a good chance at the funding to build our hydrogen infrastructure. It is only one of two states who applied to focus on green energy, solar, and possibly geothermal. Hawaii submitted a $1.2 billion proposal that could jumpstart and develop hydrogen commercially across the island. We talked to Mark Glick, who recently returned to head the state's energy office. It's a position he held under the Abercrombie administration. He says it's an exciting time for clean energy innovation. We have 10 private sector parties and 32 from you know our entire business community around the state. And we couldn't be more pleased with the level of participation, the amount of cooperation and full support for us in making this really massive effort to take on this this hydrogen hub. Well, talk about our focus and what this might mean, uh, because, I mean, we're talking billions of dollars here. The thing that becomes pretty exciting is that I think the Green Administration already achieved two principal goals by taking this thing on. And, and first and foremost, you know, I think that we have a extremely credible and competitive application. So we're going to be truly considered. I'd, I'd say we have a 50-50 shot at being able to secure this billion dollar effort for this state. And that's very exciting. You know, this is certainly not just the Hawaii State Energy Office trying to tackle a grant. This became a really massive effort, I think, to look at all of the opportunities that could be brought from this workforce development, being able to help move forward our renewable energy and decarbonization strategy. And that kind of gets us to the second big accomplishment. You know, this kind of forced us to jumpstart the role of hydrogen in the overall energy transition. You know, hydrogen is truly a proven technology, but it hasn't been commercially fully deployed. And that's because the economics are on the edge. It's not fully economical to be able to do this in scale. And what this hydrogen hub effort, you know, putting $7 billion around the country to tackle on this, basically says, you know, we believe that in a very short time period, this is the Department of Energy saying this, that we're gonna be able to have hydrogen because of all the innovations that come out of this be economical in the next five to seven or eight years and that forced us to rethink the role of hydrogen and now we see in terms of heavy-duty transportation in terms of energy and national security by having this involved in Indo-PACOM microgrids as primary or backup power and a variety of other sort of off-takers or, you know, energy consumers. We found niches where this could be economical in a very short time period. And even from the beginning with tax credits and applied to like heavy-duty vehicles, big buses and, and heavy-duty trucks, we think that it can be almost from the outset truly competitive. Well, what has scared us about hydrogen that we haven't or we didn't bring it along sooner? Well, you know, it's just a matter, I think, mostly of economics. People are not willing to make massive investments, major companies, developers, on infrastructure that is not widely produced. The vehicles are there, you know, the Toyota Mirai we've had for the last half dozen years, but in very small quantities. By taking on a big effort like this and integrating all the pieces, you'll see manufacturers stepping up, these original equipment manufacturers, vehicle manufacturers, and other people with the electrolysis and the paralysis 
technologies, you, you'll see them being produced in larger scale. And that will, I think, give greater confidence to developers to take this on. And how does geothermal and hydrogen come about? That's a really good question. We know that the sun is comprised of hydrogen and helium, but you can't just grab it and suddenly get the hydrogen resource. You have to use pyrolysis or you have to use electrolysis to split water or methane. And like on electrolysis, you have to get electricity. And so you have to generate electricity. We have you know, a lot of geothermal resource potential on Hawaii Island and a lot of solar opportunities around the state. And so we had developers stand up and say, for a, an emerging hydrogen market, we're willing to produce our natural resources to be able to generate the electricity to break down and create this hydrogen. And so that's also part of the plan. As you know, you know, with geothermal as a public trust resource, we also have to do that by reaching out to the community and doing this in a manner in which they fully support. So that's also part of this effort. The Department of Energy built into this hydrogen hub application uh, a community benefits plan. It comprises 20% of your evaluation, and they also built in something through a presidential executive order called Justice 40, which says that 40% of the benefits of these projects that you're developing have to go back into the communities. And so we're being extremely mindful of that, and we built that into our application as well. Right, because we saw when there were efforts to develop geothermal that there was some pushback by the Native Hawaiian community. But then again, we've also seen some progress being made in places like New Zealand. And there are some in the Hawaiian community that are saying, you know, this could be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that we really learned a lot over the last dozen years and that we're going to approach this in the right way. We put together a number of working groups as we're developing the application with wine organizations and other leaders, and we hope that we'll have that level of participation as we proceed. But you're exactly right. You know, there have been places around the world, New Zealand, you know, you mentioned, and we've had some presentations from people that were involved in that and geothermal production. And it definitely can be done in a way that really benefits the communities. Now, there's also a component in your application to possibly serving military locations on Guam and Kwajalein Atoll. I mean, is it going to be fairly easy to get this hydrogen to those places? Yeah, I mean, part of what the the way that the application was configured was that it had to be a truly regional hub, and you know, means has to sort of extend beyond any single borders. What we saw when Indo-PACOM, one of the 42 partners, was helping us on the application, they had already developed for national security reasons microgrid plans. And we simply were going to sort of extend same approach, microgrid approach, to several other locations that they've deemed to be extremely important, Guam and Kwajalein, and using, again, the same approach that we're going to be applying in Hawaii. The microgrid development, you know, does require in order to be able to operate independently, you know, in case of a power outage, and even to operate just functionally off-grid, essentially, you know, by the renewable energy that's produced right on site. We're going to be able to do that in all three of the Indo-PACOM locations that we've identified. And while we've heard lots of activity around ground transportation, what about with ships and airplanes? 
I think the airplane portion we're keeping our eye on, there's definitely some wonderful technological breakthroughs, but especially on the fuel that's used to blend the existing jet fuel, SAG, using this essentially the hydrogen to be able to create a blend, we're actually going to be able to incorporate that as part of the initial thrust of the hydrogen hub to produce this SAG gas that can be used for aviation. As far as the cruise ships, I mean, we definitely have tugs or barges, let me say, that will be used to transport the hydrogen between islands, and we plan on having that operating on hydrogen as well. Are there any downsides for developing hydrogen? I don't know. Is hydrogen more flammable <laughs> than anything else? Safety is an extremely important consideration. Hydrogen can be volatile, but you know, frankly, if you were trying to approve gasoline today or even diesel as a new fuel, it would be very difficult because of its flammability. It's so easy to ignite. Hydrogen pursued safely and appropriately can be extremely safe, just like we learned with methane and being able to store and transport it. So it has to be done carefully, and particularly at some stage, it will probably want to liquefy it and basically move it you know, after turning it into liquid. You know, that's a cryogenic process. It has to be handled carefully. But particularly in the kind of fleet applications that we're looking at, you know, I think that'll be part of the training effort. And again, an exciting possibility. But we believe and we've seen in application around the country and around the world, this can be done safely. That was Mark Glick, head of the state's energy office, talking about Hawaii's proposal to develop hydrogen infrastructure across the islands. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, announcing artist pop-ups this Saturday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., featuring Honolulu-based Chris Goto and the North Shore's Route 99, Hawaii. Our reality check today takes us to Kauai for a story about an aging dam. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light joins us. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So, yeah, tell us about this dam because, uh, what, it's more than, what, 100 years old? It is. It's a plantation-era reservoir that used to uh, help irrigate the uh, sugar crop in the uh, North Shore Kauai town of Kilauea. It's about 103 years old, and um, like so many of our dams and reservoirs in Hawaii, uh, it's been flagged by the state for not meeting new, modern uh, safety regulations. Um, and so its future is sort of very much in limbo. So it's interesting because uh, folks are, what, mounting a fundraising effort to try and save it. Yeah, so the, the reservoir itself is owned by three groups. Uh, one is a 108-member uh, homeowners association. Um, and there are two other uh, legacy uh, plantation uh, farms that no longer rely on the water, but, but they maintain the water rights. And these three groups, um, you know, faced with having to upgrade the reservoir to the cost of about 10 to $12 million in order to, to have it comply with state regulations, they've sort of decided that's a cost they just can't sell out. Um, none of these groups 
have really any economic incentive to do so, although many of the members say they'd love to see the reservoir continue to exist. Um, so, so the ownership groups have decided to move forward with getting a permit to decommission the reservoir. Um, but the interesting turn that's happening now is that a, a nonprofit agricultural center uh, that has been banking on water for the reservoir to irrigate its farm as it expands, uh, they've said, hey, well, we're going to try to ra- raise the money that it takes to upgrade the reservoir because we really need this. Right, so you've got a group that wants to continue farming to provide food for our community. Uh, and, and then I understand that there's also a, a, a component for possible development as well. Yeah, so, so one of the components is that this nonprofit agricultural center, it's called Aina Ho'okupu Okilauea. Uh, it's about eight years old, and it's on a 75-acre parcel. They're actively farming about eight to ten acres right now. But there's a vision for the farm to grow about fivefold. Um, so right now the farm is using about a million gallons a month of county potable water. And uh, they know that the county is not going to be able to supply them with all the water that they need to, to grow their footprint so dramatically. Um, so so the, the, the thought here is that, you know, the county also has separate but nearby plans to build some affordable housing. And if the farm can shift to a new water source, if the farm can use this reservoir water, uh, then that would free up that million gallons a month that the farm's currently using to help, um, you know, support this affordable housing project that's planned. Yeah, so it's interesting. So it, it, this farming effort might help to boost our food security uh, and to develop more homes. But yeah, we've just got to get several million dollars to help the, with those repairs. Interesting issue. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Brittany Light. You can read more uh, on her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Pacific University. Its choirs and orchestra perform music of the Pacific 4 p.m. Sunday at Aloha Tower Marketplace. Open to the public, hpu.edu slash arts at hpu. Big Island carver and photographer Bo Jack Imuaki just returned from an artist-in-residency at the Art Center in Otautahi, or Christchurch, New Zealand. It's one of Aotearoa's premier hubs for culture, education, and creativity. He shared his mastery of cordage, a skill ancient Polynesians used to lash together their long voyaging canoes and an art passed down from his native Hawaiian father. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with Key about his experience. It was amazing. They brought me down to teach cordage and my lashing with the Otautahi weavers in conjunction with the art center. So we went on to the Madai, and uh, it was just just amazing to share. For me, it's very important to share our kaula, you know, our cordage, because without the cordage, we wouldn't be out throughout the Pacific. We wouldn't have voyaged anywhere. Right. You know, so it starts with the cordage, and for them to think highly of my work enough to bring me in, such an honor, you know. Aotearoa is so amazing, it's beautiful, but the people, 
that's what makes it even more special. You know, it's like a second home for me. I've never been, but I feel like this is another place that would feel like home. So when people from here, from Hawaii, ask me, oh, how long did you visit, visit Aotearoa? And I respond, I didn't visit, I lived there. And uh, that's really how I feel when I go there. There's places that looks like Kohala Mountain Road. It looks like Ahualoa, right above Honoka'a. Looks like, of course, Waimea. So it's like you're just taking second looks and it's like, wow, is this Waimea? Is this Kohala Mountain? And the people, we just click, you know, we're one in the same, we're cousins, you know? We've known each other for a long time, but I did not know that you were an artist until I saw your photography of Mauna Loa. And you're saying that your artist in residency was focused on your lashings. Can you talk about your early days of being an artist? How did you become known for your lashing? So early on, I was a fisherman with my dad, and that's the first place where I connected with our ancestors, and I knew something was in me. So I made fishing lures early on, big game fishing lures. And then, I don't know, I just felt this strong connection, so I started researching about our Macau, our ancient Hawaiian fishing hooks, and I wanted to wear one. And I just started carving them, but I really didn't know how to do any lashings. So I'm basically self-taught, you know, and a few trips back and forth to the museum. Peter Buck, the Bishop Museum Arts and Crafts book, that has been my Bible from day one. And just doing trial and error and just learning, you know, and kind of finding out that it was in my DNA. I just love it. I can't stop. You know, it's my muscle memory. And it just evolved from fish hooks and then it evolved into adornments, more so adornments. I didn't want to be known as a fish hook guy. And so I switched over to adornments, which I still love making fish hooks, but I like to, the adornments that our kupuna made and then kind of recreate them and then put my spin on them and kind of envision if I was back then or they were here now in present day, what would we do more or less? So it's just an extension of our kupuna's work that I feel I'm doing, and hopefully I'm doing them justice and they're, they're proud, you know. So once you started doing these lashings, at mm-hmm. what point did they get like a show or a display? How did the art center identify you as somebody who is proficient at this or, or a master lasher? In Waimea, there was this art school called Hoea that Hiko Hanapi started, and that I ended up doing some lashings there and just by sheer luck that I pulled in one day and I needed to show them my work and they were actually losing money from my anagram and they needed somebody to teach and then here I came in and showed them my work and they said hey would you teach classes you know I'm like ah and so I decided to jump in and then one thing led to another and I just been doing it ever since that was what in 2011 I believe that I really started really trying to learn more and experiment and just from that and just erupted and finding my culture and being proud of our culture that has been huge for me and then I got invited to a couple of indigenous gatherings down in Aotearoa one that they asked me to teach cordage there and here at this gathering there was absolute masters indigenous artists from all over the world and they asked me to teach a class I'm like, holy cow, I can't imagine. So I did, you know, reluctantly I did. And then one of the the Maori wahinis there, Paula Rigby, she was one of my students there. And she saw how I taught the class and worked through everything. And so she's a master weaver down in Aotearoa. So she brought me in. So it's just really it's about connections. And when I speak, I really feel like our cordage and our lashing is like our umbilical cord that connects us all, you know. 
what incredible validation for the years of hard work that you put into honing your skill. And so as an artist in residence in Aotearoa, what did you do there? Did you hold some classes there? Did you create some artwork down there? Yes, I did a couple of classes, which was all day, all day classes, which was amazing. And then Paula and Petey took myself and another Hawaii-based Alaska artist to Vahipanas, all the, the sacred areas and things that they thought that I would connect to. Just going back to your roots, you were talking about learning how to make fish hook and you learned how to tie hooks as well from your dad. What kind of family lineage do you have when it comes to this kind of artistry? So I was always around it. My dad made ukulele with my brothers, but really what my mom and dad were known for was making their really, really lays and niihau shell lays. Uh, They would actually be selling at the Marimana, you know, if my dad was alive. So I was always around art and always around fine detail. My dad was always kind of hard on us. And if we want to go to the beach, he would pass us a bottle of Nihao shells and say, okay, before you guys go, you have to take out the sand from the pico. You know, so we'd sit there and take out all the sand. And before you know it, we couldn't go. It was too late. And he kind of knew that. But I think that attention to detail was passed down from my dad. And then it's a funny thing because when I went to Ho'ea, we signed a waiver saying that we would allow the faculty to research our genealogy. And they found that I come from a long line of net makers on Molokai and that they were very, very particular. And if the Upena didn't open perfectly, they would burn it. They were perfectionists. So what they did at the school was kind of show all of us that we don't fall far from the tree. And all of us had real huge similarities to the description of our kupuna that was before us. Like I said before, it's in our DNA. We can't deny that. Where did your interest in photography come from? Was that something that you had as as a young child as well, or is that something that you developed in no, school? No, I've been. I took a, a trip to Alaska, and I just had a cell phone. This was oh, ten years ago now, and I said I'm not going to only take my cell phone. So I bought a cheap camera and I went up there. And I came home. I, I took a sunrise shot in Homer, and that morning was freezing cold. And when I came home to edit it, it made me feel cold. And I'm like, wow, like I actually can evoke emotion with the camera. And that was a start. So I sold that camera and I've been head first after that. And it's a good balance because if I carve, sometimes I'll sit down at my bench pin for six, seven, eight hours at a time. Then I look at the time and it's perfect for me to go stretch my legs and get out into nature. And I think that's why I love the wide angle because I'm always working directly in front of me like very isolated. And then with the wide angle, I can see the whole world, you know, and kind of Hawaii to my eyes. My old boss would say, how are you going to differentiate, you know, between other photographers? And I said, well, the camera is the same, but the person that's using it turns into whoever's using it. So when people ask me, what kind of camera do you use? I say, I have a Hawaiian camera. (laughs) (laughs) Really, it is, you know, because I can pass it to somebody else and they're not going to shoot the same way that I'm shooting, they're not going to be attracted to the culture that I am and the intricacies of our culture, of us, you know, as a people. Thank you so much for talking story with me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Malama Pono. That was Big Island artist Bojack Imuaki talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. He has a stone carving in the 2023 Mana Invitational Art Show going on now until April 27th at the Waikoloa Center in Hilo. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. Hey, 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 hey.
Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the floral-inspired spring event Avant Garden on April 29th, featuring performances and immersive art experiences across the museum. Tickets at HonoluluMuseum.org. Letters from Home. It's a USO-inspired stage production that is being presented in 50 states. It kicked off in January and comes to the Paliku Theater on Oahu's windward side for one night only on April 26. He was a famous trumpet man from North Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was the top man at his craft. We talked to Erin Durst. She's the creative force behind Letters from Home. She and actor Dan Beckman are more than halfway through a road trip across our 50 states. Letters from Home actually started all the way back in 2010, kind of as an Andrews Sisters tribute show. And it's developed over the years to be a overall USO-inspired show that has just kind of gone through the eras of the different kinds of music from the different wars, like World War II and Vietnam. The show's just very interactive. We sing and we tap dance, and we also do a lot of audience interaction. And we just try to kind of turn the spotlight on the audience to make them feel remembered and loved and all of our veterans that come to the shows we really like to honor them during the show so it's kind of just a amazing experience that's very theatrical <laughs> well i have good memories of the uso i learned how to swim there <laughs> no way wow yes and so it's a, a wonderful place to be yeah no kidding and uh, of course we are not affiliated with the uso but we're inspired by the work that they do and we try to kind of bring the feeling of the shows a lot of these guys and gals would have seen during their time in the service and bring that back to them to help stir up some memories and some good times. Tell us about where this kicked off and where Hawaii is in the 50 states that where you're putting the show on. Well, we just finished our 33rd stop in Montana and we've got two more states until we fly to Alaska and Hawaii, I think, is about our 41st stop. So the pace of this tour has been crazy. We started out in Florida on January 25th. That was our first show at the Gulf Theater in Punta Gorda. And it's kind of felt like a sampler platter because we've gotten to go to the beaches. We've gotten to go to the mountains. We've had snowy days. We've had 80-degree days. And it's been a neat thing to see not only the climate changes, but also the different things in each state and also the different ways that the people in the audience react in each state. So that has been something really special about this tour. And Dan, I don't know, do you have a connection to the USO? Actually, I don't have a connection with the USO, and, and neither does Aaron directly, but her father was a Coast Guard veteran, and so he was largely the inspiration to put a show together in that style for veterans. My backstory is a lot less veteran-oriented. I didn't have a lot of exposure to family members or friends in the military, and it was actually through working with Letters from Home starting about five years ago that I was granted the perspective of all the men and women who have served, and it's been an enormously humbling and rewarding experience to be a part of this tour, to be able to honor them and, and get a whole new perspective that I didn't have before. It's grown me as a person, and I'm immensely grateful to the experience and to all the people that we serve. 
Well, you know, I just remember as a kid watching the USO shows when Bob Hope would come to town and Mm -hmm. the military men and women just loved the entertainment, you know, the fact that he made a point of going from place to place to entertain the troops. I mean, it really was a, a marvelous thing. And I don't know, Aaron, talk about, you know, what you've seen on this trip and how it's affected families. You know, it's crazy. I love watching the audience reactions. I think we kind of get the best seat in the house just because we get to see the facial expressions and the tears and the laughter. And what's been amazing is this show started out primarily for World War II veterans and their families, really honored them. And as time went on, we discovered that there were so many Vietnam veterans that deserved to not only be honored, but to be welcomed home because they never had the warm welcome home that they so much deserved. And the soundtracks of World War II and Vietnam are so vastly different, but to sing the music and to really feel and kind of talk about the times, it's amazing the parallel of the division during the time of Vietnam and now that's happening in our country today. And I feel like it's a very healing thing to kind of go through the history of um, both wars while singing and tap dancing to the animals because, you know, you got to do that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just been amazing to see the reactions. Not only do people feel honored and loved, but we have a ton of families and kids and young people that come to the show. Some of them are hearing the music for the first time, even though it's 60 years old, and it still holds up, and it's just such a fun, family-friendly time that someone's going to get something out of it, whether you're feeling honored as a veteran or whether you're seeing a family or a loved one or whether a memory is coming back from the 60s or 70s. It's kind of amazing the vast differences in the reactions that we get. You know what's so cool about the shows that we've seen is also kind of what's great about the country in general, and that's that, you know, there's 50 United States in this country, which is a lot more country than most countries have access to in their own. And what we found is that the subcultures of each state are so varied and so such an interesting combination of variables of types of people and ecosystems and political climates and things like that, that no matter where you want to go or where the kind of life you want to lead in this country, you can you can find a corner of it that fits your needs. And the shows themselves have kind of reflected that. We get to see different kinds of people coming out to shows and different audiences responding differently to, to different jokes. But the most beautiful thing is that at the end of the day, the show is hitting home everywhere we go, which really kind of shows that as much as we tend to get hung up on the differences between our, you know, our, our citizens of this country, the thing is, is that we're largely the same people. And this show is reaffirming that for Aaron and myself. So it's been great to see a bunch of different places with a bunch of different people and still realize that we are indeed United States. Well, Aaron, I, I bet you could write a book and, you know, put on another play just based on the reception that you're getting as you go from state to state across the country. <laughs> That's so true. You know, we have a documentarian who's actually traveling with us. He's on our team and he's been filming every single show and the reactions that people are having. So after this tour is over, we're going to have a documentary come out that is going to kind of hopefully encompass the magic of how this tour has been. And I think that it really is kind of uniting the nation in a very special way. We've had people suggest that family members come in different parts of the country, and they're all seeing the same show at different times, which is really neat. We've also just had a lot of people feel a lot more hopeful after the show. The last few shows especially, we've just had a lot of people come up afterwards and say, thank you, I feel 
so much more hopeful than I did. And I hope that the experiences that they're having will just kind of keep going into their everyday lives and they can go from there and spread more joy. And it's amazing the power that music has. You know, it's a universal language. We all speak it and it really brings everyone together. And we're seeing that all over the country in every state we go. And this production is entitled Letters from Home. I mean, are you using actual letters from our servicemen and women? We are not. The the idea of the title, which is the name of the group, Letters from Home, is that one of the biggest comments we got when we would talk to veterans about their service is that the thing that enriched them the most and really gave them the most um, relief and joy was receiving a letter from home when they were somewhere unfamiliar and dangerous. And so our show is kind of... Um, metaphorically providing that same sort of salve for the soul and the the same warmth and the same sort of hug that a letter from home would have during service time. I feel like my expectations have just been blown away with this tour because you set out to do something that's kind of massive um, for for a small group like ours and you're not sure who's gonna come and what the reactions are gonna be. First of all, I knew that the veterans would like the show and feel appreciated, but the biggest surprise that I've had is that the families and the young people are just getting so into it. And we have people that are following us on our blog. We have people that are following us on Facebook. We have people that are watching the videos on YouTube when they're not present in the audience. And it feels very, very much like this community that we call America is all a part of the show and it's just all a part of what we get to see in every single state so i think one of the biggest things for me is that it feels like it's brought the community of america together a little bit more across the country which has been oh so special (laughs) and um one of the biggest things too is that politics and patriotism are not the same thing and this is a very patriotic show but but there's, there's not a lick of politics in it. Um, in fact, we blatantly say that in the show, that politics and patriotism aren't the same thing. And we hope that people will just feel great about living where they live, regardless of how they feel about who they voted for or something like that, because it, it has nothing to do with it. You can still appreciate America for what it is just because of how beautiful it is and the freedoms that we have. That was creator and director Aaron Durf and actor Dan Beckman, who perform in Letters from Home, a stage production honoring our veterans that is here uh, in Honolulu for one performance next Wednesday. Look for links on our website later today.